Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. As we leave 2022 and head into 2023, it's time for the annual EIS Navigator year-end panel. Another all-star lineup gathered to discuss how the year went for EIS and VCT fundraising and investing, the renewal of the schemes, and how we see the world of venture capital shaping up in the year ahead. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So I'd like to welcome our panel, who is very exciting lineup again this year. So I'd like to welcome Christiana Stewart-Lockert, who is Director General at EIS Association, Keelan Doyle, who is Director at Simbin Capital, and Neil Cole, who is Head of Wealth Planning Solutions at UBS Wealth Management. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. So, as usual, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you. So, ladies first, we'll start with Christiana, who's having a first appearance on the podcast. Do you want to tell us a little about who you are and why I've asked you to be on the podcast? Yes, of course. Thank you so much, Brian. So, I'm the Director General of the EIS Association, and um, we are the official trade body for the EIS and SEIS industry. So, that's Absolutely everyone who uses the schemes right through from the entrepreneurs, the intermediaries, the tax advisors and the lawyers to the investors and fund managers. So we really represent the whole ecosystem. And ESA does three main things. Um, One, education is incredibly important. So raising awareness of the schemes because there are still a surprising number of both founders and investors who haven't heard of EIS and SEIS. So education is really important. Secondly, uh, we also provide regulatory updates, technical updates, uh, networking events for our members and and, uh, best practice, things like that. And finally, and and very importantly, we act as the intermediary between the industry and the government. So protecting the schemes, working with the government to, to make sure the schemes are being used as intended and um, obviously, the sunset clause has been a big issue this year in particular. Yes, when well, we will come back to that topic later on. Uh, Keelan, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Keelan Doyle. I'm a co-founder of Simban Capital. We've been going since, well, we were incorporated in 2013 and launched our first fund in 2014. We're a technology-focused fund, particularly business-to-business technology SaaS is sort of what most of our portfolios consists of. We've, um, although we've, we've, we're, I guess, seven or eight years old now, we, the principals have worked together since 2005, and we've also been involved in the tech market since uh, way back to the 1990s in the UK. Uh, we have, uh, at any given time, an EIS and an SEIS fund open. I, I, I suppose we've been a tech fund back, you know, back in the time when there weren't too many tech funds in, in the EIS world, um, when most most of the market was asset back. But we we were still, uh, as a matter of fact, I was giving an investor presentation today, and our original philosophy and return objectives and whatever are still intact. So hopefully, we're doing something right. I think you are. I would like to congratulate you on your recent victory at the Growth Investor Awards last week. Well, thank you. Neil, would you like to introduce yourself? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, my name's Neil Cole. I work at UBS Wealth Management. Been at UBS just over a decade now. I had a nice little email congratulating me on 10 years service last weekend. So it's uh, it's flown by. I've always been in the uh, product management and distribution side. And um, I'll actually always remember, I think the first task I was given after I joined UBS was to launch a venture capital offering, which was interesting because at the time I knew nothing about venture capital. Um, so it's a bit of a steep learning curve, but um, launched a VCT and EIS offering uh, back in 2013. Um, so yeah, fast approaching 10 years of uh, VCT and EIS at, at UBS Wealth. We've always been more focused on the true growth approach, uh, I'd say pro- proper in inverted commas, proper venture capital managers. And it's been an increasingly important part of our advisory shelf. And really, my role is in uh, meeting all of the managers that are out there um, doing the kind of research, due diligence, product selection, and then helping advisors with the proposition as well. So helping them understand what the products are, how they work, how to position them with clients. So yeah, I've been doing, been doing that a decade among, amongst other, other things. And yeah, looking forward to the conversation today, Brian. As, as am I, uh, and as listeners, uh, astute business listeners will be aware, we have got a balanced perspective. So we've got Neil from sort of kind of the planning advice side, Keelan as a fund manager, and Christiana, more, perhaps more regulatory and maybe with a, a broad, a, a different perspective or overview of the market. So hopefully we'll get lots of insights. In fact, I know we're going to get lots of good insights from, from, from everyone going forward. So... We're looking back a little bit in 2022. We're not quite at the end of it as we record, but we're pretty close. Last year, fundraising was a really hot topic because we had stonking sort of 2021. It carried on a little bit into the new year. How's your perspective on this year? So we'll maybe start with Keelan as the fund manager. I think most of the fund manager, I mean, one of the things that was interesting about the Growth Investor Awards last week was talking to people and sort of comparing notes on this. But I think most people have had a fairly tough year in terms of fundraising. I mean, the year kind of kicked off with uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, it's, uh, of course, and we'll get on to this. Uh, last year, Neil and I were talking about the B word, the bubble word, and that well and truly burst this year. And I, I think we, uh, we we can be glad we discussed that in some depth last year. But if you're a technology fund manager, it didn't make things easier, even though I would argue that there's a lot of value out there now uh, or a lot more value. But, uh, yeah, it's been a pretty tough year. I, although, having said that, I've heard some people who've had a really one, – one of the prominent EIS managers told me they had a, an excellent summer, which is unusual in terms of fundraising, but a very tough end of year. And uh, they were speculating whether that might have to do with the budget and, of course, the, the mini-budget, omni-shambles, so, et cetera. So, yeah, I would say mostly it's been a fairly it's, it's a tough year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christiana, what are you hearing? Yeah, I think, obviously, the wider economic situation is very challenging, and that's important to, to look at things against that backdrop. And I think, as well, the situation with the government and the uncertainty there and the, the various changes were making people quite nervous. So it's very welcome to hopefully have a bit more stability there now and also a bit more clarity and stability around the sunset clause as well, which has been very important. But um, I think a big part of this is just raising awareness as well. We've um, recently been doing a roadshow across the whole of the UK and we've really been to a lot of places everywhere from Edinburgh, I know, where we saw you, to also Belfast, Bristol, Manchester, Cardiff, Liverpool, sort of pretty broad uh, uh, journey. And still at every event, there are people coming up to me saying, I'd never heard of EIS and SEIS before this event, both on the founder and the investor side. 
So that really emphasizes to me how important the, the educational part of our job still is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Neil, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think it's been a challenging year, I think, <laughs> to put it to put it mildly. Yeah, all the, all the stuff that, that you guys have touched on. So the wider economic climate, the political uncertainty, I think has made it very difficult for a lot of our, our private clients. Um, most of our clients, I think it's fair to say, have been risk off most of the year. Obviously, prompted by the fact that most of their investments across all asset classes have fallen this year. Um, there haven't been many shining lights in, in investment portfolios. And it's, um, yeah, it's been, I don't think anyone, thinking back to last year's uh, podcast, actually, I was wondering just how much foresight we had, because I think we did talk about the fact that valuations were very high and kind of it felt like there might be something <laughs> coming around the corner. I don't think any yeah. of us quite expected the severity of what we've seen this year. Of course, the biggest difficulty from an investment management point of view is that traditional diversification hasn't really worked this year because everything's gone down. So kind of everything mm-hmm. that we've been telling clients for years about not putting eggs in one basket and diversifying hasn't really helped. That being said, I think as we approach the end of the year, I think it's starting to feel like there might be some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, having a bit more political stability has definitely helped in, in the UK at least. I think actually in, in private markets world, so VCTEIS, actually the valuation falls haven't been anywhere as bad as they could have been. Um, and actually a lot of the, the the products that we've recommended have held up pretty well, all, all things considered. Um, and I think actually now, finally, some of our clients are starting to think, hmm, it actually is now quite a good time to be putting some money to work because kind of the things have cooled a little bit. Some of the valuations are a bit more sensible. So actually, is it a good time to start getting in and, and seeing things as undervalued. So I'm I'm starting to feel more optimistic than I have been for most of the last nine months. Okay. Well, we'll come back to valuations later because I think that there's a lot to discuss there, but uh, you're st- sticking to the source fundraising for now. The stats we're seeing on the VCTs suggest that VCTs are selling. They're not going as rapidly as they did last year, but they still seem to be filling up. So it suggests there is kind of demand out there even if it's maybe not quite as strong. I don't know how to what I'm saying that's tax planning. Do you does anyone perceive a difference in how VCTs and AIS are doing in this respect? Uh, for, for us, VCT is definitely still more popular. I'm, I'm still never exactly sure why, um, because and I'm not just saying this because Christiana's on the call, but <laughs> I think EIS should be more attractive for most, particularly high net worth investors, because the tax reliefs are more generous. I think the, the investment story and the, and the investment returns are, are a lot more interesting. I think people still like the simplicity of VCTs and the fact that they know it's a fixed 200. A lot of our clients use it almost like an ISA allowance, which, mm-hmm. is, uh, which is quite painful because I wish I had a spare 200 grand every year to put away like an ISA allowance um, but they do that and they know that they get it's a kind of one-shot investment they get £60,000 off their tax bill it's nice and diversified it does dial down the risk a little bit compared to an EIS fund and VCTs remain popular not as popular as last year you're absolutely right We uh, I remember last tax year some offers were almost closed before we'd even received the marketing documents for them they, they, were, they were filling up that rapidly um, it's not quite the same this year but I think it still will be a decent year in, in terms of overall fundraising in VCTs world mm-hmm. yeah it does seem as though the i mean last year it was quite a quite a boom so i guess almost invariably it had to tail off from that but they do seem to be holding up perhaps more than eis but i i must say as an eis fund manager i i, I, I do run across a number of people who who uh, say we they favor vcts and i always scratch my head a bit because especially with the risk of capital applying to VCTs as well, essentially, you know, that that the one really true reason of high dividend is becoming, 
you know, less and less of a reason to be investing in them. But, and, you know, of course, there's some great advantages of EIS-1, which is often overlooked, is using EIS as an IHT uh, vehicle, and particularly in a time of high in, in, uh, inflation. But also the, the uh, you know, carry back and uh, loss relief are huge advantages for a total return of EIS. So um, <laughs> hopefully one day we sort of uh, move towards the, having the success levels of, uh, of VCTs. Christiana, do you have any thoughts? Well, one thing that I found, um, which which is really great to hear, is that there seems to be more investors interested in learning about the investee companies and exactly where their money's going. And that's a trend that I've definitely noticed. And obviously, with SEIS and EIS, you have the opportunity to invest at a very early stage, which is obviously high risk, but also it's really exciting to be supporting some companies that are genuinely going to change the world. And and there are some incredible companies out there doing amazing things, many genuinely saving lives and changing the way in which we live. So there's, there's also an element that it's fantastic to um, get in at that early stage. And also let's not forget that, you know, SEIS, EIS and VCT, they're all part of an important ecosystem and, SEIS and EIS are very important for VCTs to make sure that pipeline is is working. And and so that's also, you know, when you think there are are some companies that go through both, it's an opportunity to get in at that earlier stage as well. Yeah, I I think that story idea kind of works better in EIS or SEIS because with VCTs, you kind of fall, sometimes I call it the veil of ignorance um, in in a good way, where you've got that sort of, you've got that sort of fund between you and, and what's in underneath. So people aren't necessarily so aware of what's happening below the surface in a VCT. Whereas an EIS, you can't help be more aware of it because you have, you get an EIS certificate with the company name on it or whatever. I did have a thought, which wasn't on, on the list of questions I sent you, but I'm going to throw this out there in terms of if we're looking forwards, if we're about to go into downturn, would earlier stage be a better place for people to be placing their money just now? Not to know if it's, better but um certainly there are likely to be opportunities you know historically if we look at um economic downturns you know crises of various kinds that is where a lot of companies see the opportunity and and particularly startups which are very agile are able to to really identify those areas where there is a gap and where they can add a lot of value and so it's so you know a lot of a lot of innovation comes from periods of economic difficulty and I think that's important to remember here and a lot of people I've been speaking to are actually quite quietly optimistic about um, early stage investing for that very reason. Yep and I think the the data kind of proves that as well when you look at kind of private markets investing in in general generally the biggest outperformance obviously we all hope that private markets are going to going to outperform their, their public counterparts but and generally they do and generally the outperformance is at its biggest during what you'd call kind of crisis vintages and you look back to some of the investments that are available back in 2008-9 there were some fantastic returns from businesses that people were investing in when, when we very much felt like we were still mid-crisis um, and as Christiana says I think there were some great companies that were that were founded um, and that basically were able to exploit the kind of changing market dynamics in terms of the, the way that uh, consumers were acting and kind of the way the world was in general and have gone on to be very, very successful as a result. And yeah, I'd hope we're certainly in a, in a similar sort of period now. 
Yeah, it is. It, uh, I, I had the dilemma a year ago of um, telling people how overvalued the tech market was whilst asking them for money, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is an interesting trick to try to pull off. But I really do think now, uh, and my investment team will tell you how, how often I would go, be berating uh, our our uh, our pipeline for completely unrealistic evaluations, but I must say, although it hasn't completely corrected, there's a lot of good value out there that just wasn't you know it's much easier to find, and 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 you're right, you know, like Microsoft famously started off in the early '80s recession, and and many and many others have followed. There's it's a very although although investors are sort of it's a hard one to explain to them. It is exactly the time to be getting in um, over the next year or two uh, when, when valuations have adjusted accordingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we, we keep coming back to this valuation topic. So we let, let, let's, let's kind of address this a little bit in terms of, you know, so, so I, I think on this podcast and, and in conversation generally, the most common theme that we've had, and, and Keelan and I have discussed this at great length on various occasions, is valuations have been incredibly high. We've seen the quote market come off heavily. We've seen the private markets not come off quite as much, I would say. Um, I don't know if that's a yet. Have we fallen as far as you think we should be going? I would say no. I, I think there's still some um, way to go. I think the more, obviously, the public markets, I think, are probably that most of the most of that is out of the way. Um, but, you know, there is always some indicators of a bubble, like, for instance, um, the popularity of SPACs. You know, they, they they always call themselves different things. They used to be called cash shells or whatever. But they, when you see those getting really, really popular, you know, your your the end is near. Um, <laughs> just really stretched valuations, and, and and obviously the public market. Some of them are devastated. And the spacs are devastated, and the sort of later. It was interesting this year in June, the BBCA uh, tech um, annual tech conference. The first day is seed and Series A, and the second is Series B and above. And um, my colleague and I went to the first day, and he went to the second day, and he said the second day the the mood was unremittingly, you know, gloom and uh, gloomy. Whereas the first day, the seed in Series A, it was, you know, everyone was acknowledging because it really emanated for the United States that you know the things were tough, but they were still kind of trying to be a bit more upbeat. Um, although there was one. There was one um, one of those roundtables that was quite instructive where one person said, uh, I've never seen a tech downturn before. And he asked the rest of the panel and no one had seen. And then he said, does anyone remember 2008? And no one on the panel remembered 2008, which which made me feel very old, I must say, having seen a few <laughs> of these moving bus periods. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I know we've both discussed the, the tech bubble of 2000s as well. Exactly, but but I think there are still some people we see at an early stage who who are a bit on the un, or a bit unrealistic, but it's not nearly as bad as it was. Yeah, Neil, how do you see investors are perceiving these things? So there is a, a bit of skepticism about some private valuations. I think, um, as I mentioned, clients have had our clients have had a very tough year, and a lot of them are looking at some of the VCT and EIS valuations, saying, "Hang on, why why haven't they fallen?" Um, because actually, there are some funds out there that have seen stable or even growing NAVs this year, mm-hmm. which which feels a bit counterintuitive. And as always, you then get into the people talking about kind of the murky world of private valuations. Are people being realistic? Is it? Uh, I had a great phrase the other day that was, uh, "Why are these private?" 
equity managers allowed to mark their own homework, which is basically <laughs> it, this idea that they can can attribute whatever value they want to, to the companies. And it's not quite like that. Obviously, all managers have to follow the certain valuation guidelines. And I think there has to be an element of realism. Otherwise, it's not going to do anyone any favours if, they, if they're holding stuff at inflated valuations. And Keenan's right. We have seen tech come off. We've seen some other sectors come off. So, obviously, consumer-facing businesses with fears of a recession, there's going to be a pullback in discretionary spending. Therefore, a consumer business is going to be in a, in a, in a more difficult, uh, difficult environment. So, I think it's sensible that those have come down. However, at other sectors, you're looking at actually the fundamentals of the underlying companies, and they remain quite strong. Um, mm-hmm. And Actually, I've looked at some where I've gone, hmm, that nav looks suspiciously positive. But then actually, when you look at the underlying portfolio, you've got a bunch of companies there that are still growing their revenues. They're still profitable, um, and they're still operating uh, perfectly well as, as good, solid companies. So actually, this is the benefit of them being private businesses rather than public, is they're not victims to what's going on in the market. And they're not they're not victims to kind of the, the negativity that's often around downturns like this, where people sell out of good assets for for no reason other than the the, the fact they, they feel they should. So actually, I think there's, there's something to be said for investing in, in private assets for exactly that reason, because it takes some of the some of the noise away and some of the, some of the froth that we see in, in public markets world. Yeah, I think there's a simple mechanical function in that if you've got a high growth portfolio and your company's growing at 30% a year and valuations fall 30% a year, then in theory, that's flat. Yep, now, not every, clearly within a portfolio, not, <laughs> you won't get that sort of working out exactly on average. But there is a case, hopefully, that the companies most people investing in are progressing overall in such a way that um, valuations or falls won't hit too much. I'd like to add two points to what Neil said. One, part of the reason I think that there there isn't that fall that there is in public markets, in addition to there is that liquidity argument, there's also the fact that particularly earlier stage venture is non, not entirely un- uncorrelated, but not like loosely or lightly correlated to uh-huh. uh, major asset groups. So, uh, although the I think the rise in interest rates definitely had an impact on the te- the tech market in, in, as a whole. But uh, the other thing is, I do think some of those some of the criticisms is correct, and that there are some zombie companies there that are particularly um, you know aren't really functioning, but are marked at par, as it were. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I bet you that, and that, and when that when that corrects, it really corrects. So there probably will. That's why I think there will be another downdraft in in venture valuations. Yeah, I certainly you hear stories in the states about people putting funds aside to keep companies going. Are they propping them up? Are they trying to keep them sustainable? And perhaps they wouldn't. And yeah, one comment which I was going to ask. I've heard a couple of VCT managers talk about they raised a lot of cash last year. They haven't necessarily deployed it, but they're like, well, we, we want the money in the bank because there's opportunities, which I, 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 I both sympathize and am slightly skeptical about because, yes, there will be opportunities with lower valuations, but you're then charging fees on holding a pile of cash. Yeah, there, and there is still a lot of cash out there as well. I think, um, obviously, we've talked about the bumper year, and I'm oh, sorry to bring it back to VCTs again, but VCTs yeah. did raise a lot of cash, was it 1.3 yeah. billion last year? Um, a lot of which won't have been deployed yet, and yet here we are this year, and everyone is coming out with pretty ambitious fundraising targets again, and you think this is going to almost almost double the amount of cash that's out there in VCT world. And yeah, the optimist in me is thinking, yep, yeah, 
maybe they are seeing opportunities and certainly all the managers I'm meeting are very bullish and positive about the, their pipeline at the moment and they are seeing a lot of good businesses that are looking for cash and are at possibly more sensible valuations than they were 12 months ago so that's why they want more cash so they don't miss out on these opportunities um, but then the flip side of that is is like you say actually are there really enough opportunities for the amount of cash that's, that's sloshing around at the moment? And is that actually going to have a real negative knock-on effect on, on performance if you've got managers sitting on sitting on huge cash piles that they're not able to deploy sensibly? Mm-hmm. Presumably factoring into that is there's a gossip around companies are now being told different things. So, so whereas a year ago, two years ago, it was like deploy cash, grow, grow, grow. And now again, this is perhaps more in the US and UK, it's a case of run for cash and if you know run for profitability and if they're doing that they're not going to need so much cash does that make it then harder to deploy i think one of the things we saw with the amount of cash is a lot of tech companies were getting were raising too much cash for what they needed at the time mm-hmm. and you know that's always dangerous because we're we're always very aware of this is if you if you give too much people start building products that not aren't necessarily what the market needs it's much more better at an early stage anyway to have a sort of more bootstrapping approach and really, you know, when you're really seeking to either achieve or, or deepen your product market fit. And so people, you know, it's, it's very easy to build an all singing, all dancing technology, and it's really a waste of investors' money at the end of the day. But when there's that much money around, it, it's not sensibly deployed all the time. I think it's important, though, to, to also say that, you know, it's still very difficult for founders to to raise investment it's not an easy journey and particularly you know a lot of conversations I've had outside of London and the southeast um it's still very difficult and so yes perhaps there is more out there but there is still a huge amount of demand and still many many companies who are pitching for investment who aren't able to get that investment they need in order to scale and grow it's also interesting that there are, but they're hard to find, but there are still some areas that are hot. And, and there's one in particular, and I partially talk about my own book because we have an investment in this area, but it's digital custody. And um, there was a, today, hot off the press, there was a group called Galaxy Digital that bought a, an Israeli tech company called GKA, which emerged from, I don't know if you heard of a company called Celsius, American company that went bust. Uh, caused by a, r- a run on crypto. It was kind of the real precursor to that. But, you know, the, the idea of uh, the custodians for digital um, assets is, is um, it, it's not, it's going to move further than just um, into more conventional assets. But some of the valuations are eye-watering. I mean, Barclays just invested into a company called Copper, 500 million at a valuation of 2 billion. Now, they have revenues, we believe, of less than 10 million. Mm. You know, yep. that's it. And, and there's another American company called Fireblocks that has not quite as extreme evaluation as that. But And it's because people are, you know, they need this. They need a digital custody solution. And there's two problems that are really at, at the forefront that need to be solved. One is security and the other is speed of transaction. So it's it's an anomaly, certainly. I mean, most other parts of the tech world are getting hammered, but that, that one area stands out. Yeah. Yeah, so so so, is there anything that we see particularly hot? And I guess you know, not would be the crypto side of things. But I think if you look at the political situation um, with everything happening on a global level, obviously food security has become incredibly important. And so there have been some 
interesting developments in agritech and some exciting companies coming through and some new funds launched specializing in that area as well. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's definitely quite an interesting area in food more generally to look at right now. But also, obviously, with COVID and all of the excess deaths, you know, we had Chris Whitty just mentioning um, earlier this week about all the additional excess deaths unrelated to COVID. That is more of a need than ever to have these really important companies that are coming up with ways to improve our health at an earlier stage. There there was one um, who spoke at our event in Belfast, Genome Diagnostics, and they're using... they've. Uh, developed a PCR test that can test for very early stage ovarian cancer and mm-hmm. they're hoping to roll it out to pancreatic and breast cancer as well and um, it has a very high degree of accuracy at a very early stage which when you think of um, all the knock-on effects of lockdown is incredibly important. I think and we, we actually talked about this 12 months ago I think but the the whole idea of impact I think remains a, a hot area because mm-hmm. people realize the importance of sustainability now and if you've got businesses that can demonstrate they're having a positive effect um, they're directly contributing towards impact and, and sustainability of uh, and, and are addressing very particular either environmental or, or, or social issues then I think there is going to be a lot of demand for those businesses and I think we're starting to move into a world now where companies that are having a positive impact are really desirable for investors. Um, whereas if you go back sort of 15, 20 years, I think people rolled their eyes at the idea of ethical funds or impact mm-hmm. investing because no one thought you could make any money out of it. Whereas actually now it's those businesses that are having a positive effect are going to be much more successful because in the in the long run, I think everyone's aware that we need sustainability. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because the noises I hear is that the fund management community in some sense has got excited about it. There is a portion of the investor community has but the majority of people are not buying into it yet for whatever reason. I don't know if, if it's just not they're not convinced or if they don't believe it or if it's just not their priorities re- prioritize return or anything else. I don't know what other people are sort of hearing on that. The, the, you know, there's an element of greenwashing, I think, as concerns as well. You know, and, and obviously, you know, we, we, we've seen the FCA put out a new document this year on fund labeling um, in terms of here's what we think might be the what might be a way going forwards it's obviously very important for consumers and investors to understand what is meant by different labels and and what different funds are doing but going back to what we were saying about the the storytelling before i think you know consumers certainly in in the conversations i've had are very interested in the impact side of things and and what the investee companies are doing. And they also want to know that their money is being put to do good in the world and and making a positive impact. And so suddenly in the conversations I've had, that's definitely a trend I've seen. Yeah. And I I think what's changed this year is I think everyone expected it to come from kind of product development, that people would launch impact funds or ethical Mm -hmm. funds, whatever you want to call them. We haven't really seen that because I think what a lot of managers have realized is that that's not what's important. What's important is actually in your existing fund, your existing product is being able to have an impact overlay and demonstrate that kind of what you do is sustainable and what you do is having a positive impact on the world. So it's not about actually having a specific label and a specific product. It's just about doing things in the right way. Yeah, I, I saw a um, symposium recently where uh, someone said ESG is basically good good governance of companies. You know, all go, all good, well run companies are going to are, are going to have ESG at their forefront. But, but you're right. You know, I remember seeing the ethical funds for years, and they were just concentrating on. And and you're right. People 
people just didn't think you'd lose, you, you, you could make money. And now there really is that change, isn't there, where people see this as moving alongside. It's not an either-or choice. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, that perspective about people thinking you can't make money, because I remember the first analysis I saw of SRI funds, as they were back 15 years ago, and they were outperforming fairly consistently. You know, those were equity funds rather than private funds. But there, this, this idea that you can't make money is, you know, in a, in a way strange. And I know, you know, I was reading the history of venture capital and John Doerr's uh, big sort of flop, sort of when he went into clean tech in, in the sort of, you know, in the sort of 2007, 2008. And that's maybe colored things in private markets. But the idea that you can't make money while being ethical is, to my mind, a strange thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think what Neil and I were talking more was the perception of that mm, yeah. more than the reality of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know where those perceptions come from. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in a way, it's good ESG's here to say. I, I think one of the things that provokes about labeling, and just listening to what you were say, saying there, Neil, is that I think we all thought, you know, my, my mind has always been impact funds will be, you know, the things that make a positive change. Everyone will become sustainable, if you like, or compliant, as I dub it. I'm not quite sure the right word you know, basically doing no harm, eventually everyone will have to move to that. In which case, you know, it's, where does where do all these things and what do investor priorities fit in that? Are the investors want that impact? Do they want that positive change? Or are they just sort of saying, well, so long as I'm not trashing the environment, I'm okay? I, I think the winners in this will be the investment managers that can really demonstrate that they're they're doing what they say to be honest that they they can actually put some tangible examples out there and say to their potential investors that these are the sorts of businesses we're backing this is the positive impact they are having on the world and directly link them to the the issues that the world is facing and i think if managers can demonstrate that and at the same time do so in a way that is delivering mm-hmm. investment returns financial returns which obviously we all, we all hope and, and know that is, is possible then i think they, they will be the winners from the industry definitely yeah Keelan, how about you as a fund manager? Are people actually asking you questions about ESG and and what's your approach to it? Yeah, and we've we've actually invested in some companies that work. I mean, one of our companies works with FTSE two fifty companies and working on exactly what the FCA is talking about about clamping down on greenwashing and about fair representation of corporations on 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 how ESG compliant they are. So, yeah, it's something that we see every day, basically. And Christiana, how do you see sort of the people you speak to in terms of are they prepared for this? Does it still is it still work in progress? Are people still like, oh, what am I going to do? I think you know we still have to see um, exactly what the FCA does around this and and how um, how the labels are signed and things like that. But um, it's something that I think everyone is preparing for if not already prepared for there has been a lot of talk obviously it's been a hot topic and something that has been a big part of the discussion for you know a a couple of years now and so um it's definitely something that i think is very important for the industry and and as i mentioned before just ensuring that uh consumers and investors are able to really understand what's meant by the different labels is really important so what i'd like to sort of quick because move on to is uh, a big pat on the back for Christiana actually in a, in a sense because we got 
Uh, we mentioned the mini budget and we got a renewal of the SEIS and EIS and VCT schemes. So big congratulations to Christiana and, and to Mark, her predecessor, who I know did a lot of work preparing for that. So well done. That's very kind. And thank you. But um, a huge amount of work went into it by a a lot of people over many, many years and all across the industry. And our our members were incredibly helpful as well in helping to provide information and and enabling us to work um, alongside the Treasury and HMRC to really communicate um, the importance of some clarity around the sunset clause sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And even better, you managed to get the SEIS limits raised, which is yeah. in my, so on, on the podcast. I always ask at the end, "What would you like to change about the market?" And the most mm-hmm. common request I have had was to increase the limits. So well done on that. The question I wanted to ask was: Is this going to materially change what goes on in that market? Because you know, for, for people who don't know, the limit's gone from one hundred fifty to two hundred fifty thousand into a company. It seems to me that's a bit of a catcher with inflation. But Keelan, you've, you're an SEIS manager. Do you think it's going to make a big difference? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, we really outgrew that 150,000, you know, because you there's there's not much most, you know, when you're getting a company at that level, you 150 doesn't last that long. And, you know, you could even make a case of being more than 250, but 250 definitely makes a dance. And um, I know that uh, I was at the Treasury some years ago with Kieran O'Gorman from Deepridge, and we were we were talking to them about the, the SEIS level. And um, Kieran made an interesting point from the life sciences point of view, and he said, you know, a lot of life sciences take so long to get to fruition that someone would come in for SEIS and then they'd need another round, and they'd made progress, but there was little, you know, no metrics really. And a lot of investors would be loath to, oh, I missed out on the SEIS kind of thing. And, and so he was making that case for an increased limit. But, you know, really what is SEIS for is to develop an MVP, right? And that tends to cost closer to 500 than 150. So 250 is definitely a, a major achievement. Yeah, I, I think as well, if I can come in on that, the as you mentioned, it, it, a big part of it was uh, reflecting inflation since SEIS was started in 2012 but also the realities of, of what a startup needs at that stage. Um, the other change that I think is going to make a big, big difference is the extension of the age limit from two to three years uh, yeah. for the investee company. Now, in, in conversations that I've had with founders located all across the UK, I have often found that uh, that predominantly hurts companies based outside of the Southeast and also companies started by female founders and other underrepresented founders. And the reason that is, is because I I was speaking to a founder based in London the other day. She was just registering her her company and she already knew about SEIS, was already planning her her pitch and her deck and, and was fully aware of the schemes. And I think outside of London and the Southeast, where people might not be as well connected into the investment community, there isn't the same knowledge at the moment about SEIS and EIS. And and therefore, when companies are, and they also tend to grow a little bit slower, and and therefore, when companies are ready to go out and look for investment, they are often that little bit older. And there was a a great company I was speaking with in Edinburgh uh, called uh, Hearing Diagnostics. And they actually weren't able to use SEIS because by the time they were ready to look for investment, they were two and a half years old. Mm-hmm. So they were able to use the EIS, which is great, 
but it just shows that to a certain extent that two-year age limit was really disadvantaging companies and founders based outside of the Southeast. And, you know, we gave evidence to the Treasury Select Committee in June, and I made the point that that really, I, I, I doubt that that was the intention the government had and the Treasury had when they were designing the schemes. So that's why I think it's particularly important, as I mentioned, for founders outside of the Southeast and, and also for female founders and other underrepresented founders who may not be as well connected into the existing ecosystem that this age limit is increasing from April. So we're really excited about that. And I think that's going to make a really positive difference to the investment. Yeah, another another thing that gets overlooked, well, I, I say this as an SEIS fund manager, um, is that when the limit was so low, you'd often come up, you know, encounter groups. I mean, we've always used SEIS as our sort of accelerator or incubator for our EIS funds. Because really, when you work with a company, you're on the board, you really understand what they're about. No matter how much diligence you do, you, you don't get that understanding as you do working with a company. But we'd often find companies that had done 75,000 of their SEIS. And, you know, it, it made it sort of not not impossible for us to do, but we'd prefer to take the whole thing. So, for those, and they were often friends and family who would do that amount mm-hmm. of money. So, it makes it much more worthwhile from our perspective. So, it's it's very positive. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, if I can add, is just purely from an administrative point as well. You you would often find that one hundred and fifty thousand wasn't enough, and the companies were looking to raise more than that in in that round. And so they were having to do a split round where they did 150 of SEIS and then the rest uh-huh. EIS. And because of the way the rules are, you can't issue the shares on the same day. So they were issuing the SEIS shares and then the next day doing the EIS shares. And it was just creating a lot of administrative burden and, and extra cost associated with it, which is not what you want for early stage startups who are really, you know, bootstrapped and, and, and need every pound that they can to help their business grow. So that's the other element where hopefully it's going to make a big difference, particularly to the, the founders themselves. So I've got a little humorous interlude here. I was at an um, uh, intelligent partnership, had a EIS day the other day, and um, one of the, these workshops with a few wealth managers, one of them said to me, I won't name the name, but a well-known analyst in the market said that you'd have to have rocks in your head to invest in SEIS. And he said to me, what do you, what do you think of that? And I said, <laughs> well, given that I have a fund, I probably don't uh, agree with that. But I said, well, how do, you, how do you think these companies start? I mean, they all have to start somewhere. And uh, that, I think SEIS is, uh, I mean, in other countries, they certainly look with envy on this. I, I was in the Valley a few years ago. One of our companies was in an uh, in uh, accelerator. And... Um, I met a lot of the angels out there, and they couldn't believe SEIS and EIS. Well, you know, the um, the European Commission did a study a couple of years ago uh, looking at uh, schemes like this used all across the world, and they found that the number one most effective and best scheme of this kind was the SEIS in the UK, obviously, and the number two best was the EIS. So genuinely SEIS number one and EIS number two are the best schemes of their kind in the entire world and other countries have tried to replicate them but it really does mean that the UK is an incredibly attractive place to come to as a founder it's one of the best places in the world to start a business and it is it is responsible to a huge extent of just how um, vibrant and dynamic an ecosystem we have at that early stage here in the UK. So it's incredibly important for the innovation and the economic growth um, 
and you know jobs creation and everything that goes with that uh, so it makes a huge difference to the UK economy yeah N- Neil do you think the changes will attract more money into SEIS uh, yeah, I hope so. Um, I think from from my point of view, from the advisory world, um, we we I don't think there's that much SEIS that comes from uh, advisory introductions. But the big mm-hmm. hope for me is it improves, as as Christiana and Keelan have said, it improves the quantity and quality of businesses that are coming through from SEIS into that EIS sweet spot, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously where, from an advisory point of view, we're, we're quite we're, we're quite interested. Um, so I think it's definitely a positive change. It's fantastic for early stage investors. It's fantastic for early stage entrepreneurs and founders and hopefully it will have a knock-on effect through the whole kind of tax advantage ecosystem mm-hmm. yeah. one of the just just as a final point for me on this um one of the other changes to SEIS which perhaps was overlooked is that individuals can now invest up to 200,000 rather than 100,000 and Neil further to your point where you said about VCTs we have quite a few investors who put the whole 100,000 in, into SEIS so it'll be interesting to see if they if that follows up and they put the whole 200,000 mm-hmm. in yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. So, so Christiana, when we when we spoke, you said this was your number one priority for, for your coming as director general. I don't know what you're going to do now, but are there any sort of regulatory concerns out there that you're now you now that this is out of the way? What are you paying attention to from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the sunset clause is hugely important and it's brilliant that the government have expressed their commitment to extending the scheme. But I think um, it is crucial to mention that whilst they have committed to extending it, they haven't actually extended it yet. And that is a really important point. So we're still going to be working very closely with them to try and work out exactly when it is going to be extended and exactly how it's going to be extended, whether there's going to be another sunset clause in place um, or whether the schemes are going to be put on a permanent footing. So there's still a lot of work to be done. That's not to say Uh it's not great news and and, and a fantastic indication of um, their commitment to the schemes. And I I know that that is what they really wanted to get out and and reassure the industry that, you know, it's not that EIS was disappearing on the 6th of April 2025. So I think that's important. That's been key for confidence and key for stability as well. And I think it is particularly um, poignant that, Obviously, the changes to the SEIS and the commitment to EIS and VCTs were initially announced in the mini-budget, and a huge amount of that mini-budget was U-turned on, and two of the few things that stayed uh, in Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement um, just a few weeks ago were the changes to the SEIS and the commitment to the EIS and VCTs. And I think that's really important and interesting to note just how much of a priority the government is making innovation and obviously the entrepreneurs that drive the innovation here. So that's incredibly reassuring, I think. But yes, still, you know, still a lot of work to be done in terms of exactly how and when EIS is extended. It is also worth me mentioning that SEIS is not subject to a sunset clause because it is uh, de minimis, it's a small amount. So it, it is just the EIS and the VCT that is subject to it. What What are your hopes and or expectations of when that will be actually confirmed, Cristiano? Because my only concern about this, and obviously before the mini budget, my biggest concern was as we get closer to 2025, inevitably there'll be a bit of panic that sets in the industry. This always happens when you've got a kind of a line in the sand coming up. Um, and I think obviously, I think we can all agree the sooner the better. But what what do you, what, what do you hope to get from, from the government and, and when? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. You know, um, every, every day it's, it's going to cause a bit more concern the closer we get. So absolutely, the sooner the better. I think it's a big enough announcement that it, it will be at a fiscal event. So, you know, essentially coming up, you've got, you've got either, um, in kind of March time or next autumn. I think, and I, I hope that it will all be announced before the end of 2023. If I was a, Betting person, I would probably say it's likely to be in the autumn, but you know, obviously, we'll see what the government does. But I think sooner, sooner the better. But I do think that this commitment that they have made goes um, a long way to addressing some of the concerns around it, um, and that is really important and a really significant step. And so, we're not in the same position that we were in three months ago, um, and and the market should definitely feel a lot more confident in the government's commitment to the schemes as well. Yeah. I, 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 chatting around, I certainly get the feeling the market is a heck of a lot more confident than they were. That's good to hear. I'm sure I'm sure the, uh, the government will be pleased to hear that as well. Yeah. So looking forward into, so we've spoken a lot about 2022, looking forward into 2023, how do you see sort of the prospects good and, you know, what, what's the positive prospects and what sort of the risks do you see out there? Well, I think the the risks, are, as we've alluded to, we're in a pretty tricky period at the moment. I mentioned earlier there might be some light at the end of the tunnel, but the big risk is that things continue to deteriorate. I think we're all expecting uh, a period of recession, uh, at least in the UK and, and probably across uh, big big chunks of the, the planet as well. And I guess it's uh-huh. the the risk is actually how serious an impact does that have on on kind of all all, all things finance really. Uh-huh. There was an interesting at the EIS technical um, summit a few days ago. There, Bohurst was showing, you know, 2022 being a, a, a tough year. But one of the things, and we touched on this last year, um, I believe, is um, I thought was a particularly interesting point about why things are, are perhaps getting better on the valuation front is that a lot of that American hot money is gone. And uh, there was a quite a bit of it last year, uh-huh. and I thought that was interesting. I mean, Tiger's just an obvious example, but there was there there was plenty others as well. But uh, I think I, I'm pretty optimistic for next year because I think the economy. I'm not. I think that it's going to be a pretty nasty recession, <laughs> and inflation is going to be lingering a lot longer than we want. But I think it's going to be a stock pickers market for venture as opposed to a wall of money market. And I think the valuations are corrected sufficiently, and there's still a lot of good companies out there that. I, I think we're going to, uh, and I think hopefully we can convince investors that it's a good time to invest, as opposed to you know maybe a year or two ago when when uh, it's a better time to invest than it was a year or two ago. So I, I remain pretty optimistic for next year. I think I'll, I'll come back to a comment I made again twelve months ago where I said I think we'll start to see a lot more variability in performance. In that I think for a few years, pretty much anyone could make money in private mm. equity slash venture and you saw you saw lots of managers coming in who thought they were or probably still think they're absolutely brilliant at this game because they were seeing valuations go up i think mm. we've started to see exactly what i was spelling out last year that actually as dif- times get more difficult the good managers will really prove themselves and actually they'll be able to maintain or improve their valuations and i think I, my fear is that some of the less good managers will, will see some high profile casualties actually as uh, as as perhaps then they're, they're not as good as they thought they were do you think 2023 will be soon enough to see that, or do you think that's something that we'll maybe see a little further out? Good question. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, some casualties of the, of the crisis in 2023. I'll, I'll be honest. 
I think we'll start to see it in 2023 and it'll become more obvious thereafter. But I do think we'll see some managers who have quite a few failures or markdowns. Uh-huh. It's interesting. I think um, obviously since their inception, the schemes have been responsible for more than 27 billion pounds being invested into 52,000 companies. So, you know, this is a really significant contribution to the economy. And if we look at the figures that came out in May from HMRC, so these are the figures for 2020-2021, investment through SEIS in particular was extremely robust, but also through EIS, the the figures held up very well. So I do think and um, hope that, you know, and the data that Keelan mentioned um, that Boha shared on Tuesday night it, it is pretty optimistic. It does show that um, investment through the schemes are pretty is pretty robust, which is promising. So I'm I'm quietly optimistic. Not not to say that there's not a um, very difficult situation in the wider economy going on, but as I mentioned earlier as well, um, that also creates opportunities for entrepreneurs and historically has been shown to be a time of great innovation. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing what happens. The other thing that I think is interesting is obviously COVID has had a significant impact on working patterns. And it will be interesting to see the extent to which the schemes which have predominantly been used in London and the Southeast, it's, you know, I think 65%, something like that, of investee companies using the schemes are based in London and the Southeast. And to see whether that actually spreads a bit more broadly across the rest of the UK and, and we see uh, more uptake elsewhere in the UK. And also through, um, as I mentioned, the extension to SEIS from two to three years, whether that has an impact there as well. It, it was probably too early to, to see by the end of 2023, 20, but certainly looking forward, it will be interesting to see the impact. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know the thing that I'm wor- worried about a little bit is what happened with exits. Because you know we've we've been through a little bit of a bubble where cash has been plentiful and corporate corporate balance sheets are still strong, but whether they actually want to be buying uh, companies, or certainly substantial companies, I'm I'm less sure. Um, and they may well decide you know, they'll probably be exceptions, and and they certainly won't be paying top dollar for those. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of feedback on an interesting meeting I had about a week ago with a no, not a week ago, but a month ago with a. A company that that's looking at potentially buying one of our insure tech companies, and it's a big insurance, like a massive NYSE listed company. And they were talking to us about a year and a half ago, and back then there was all about growth. They didn't care about us being profitable. Mm-hmm. But since then, they're focusing on they want us to be profitable before they would entertain an acquisition. Now, I think part of that is because an activist shareholder has been, is on their board and is probably insisting on, on them sticking to their knitting and focusing on insurance because they, they went off piece a little bit and bought some non-core assets. But, but it is interesting, nonetheless, that it's, it's a sort of more conservative approach to, to M&A. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that going forward. So, so what I'd like to do finally is pin you all down a little bit. I want a specific prediction for 2023. So tell me something you think is going to happen. Okay, so shall I start? I'm going to surprise you with a wildly optimistic prediction for mine. Um, I'm going to go quite macro as well. I predict interest rates will peak in about the middle of next year. And at the first indication that interest rates might start coming down, investors are going to flick that switch from risk off to risk on. um, And suddenly we're going to see uh, 
a, a big bounce back in a lot of asset classes is my, is my prediction. I think we're going to get less money coming into tech, but it's going to be more focused and some managers are going to do quite well out of this. Christiana? I, I think we might see an increase in uh, EIS and SEIS being used across the whole of the UK and Something we haven't really touched upon it in this conversation today, but in terms of investment in female founders, uh, there's a lot of fantastic work that's being done around that, uh, particularly by the Alison Rose Review. And um, I think it's starting to have an impact. So we may also see growth in that area too. Well, that would, that would be very good to see. It's something the venture capital industry needs. Very exciting. Yeah. So... I'd like to thank you all for coming on today, Christiane and Keel and Neil. Thank you very much for, for coming on and being part of our exciting year-end panel. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, both. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed our wonderful panel. I'd like to wish you a slightly belated Merry Christmas and a good, healthy and prosperous New Year. As usual, you'll be able to get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back in two weeks time. <laughs>